Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak to us and that your voice would be louder than all of the other voices around us. And we ask that your voice would penetrate into our lives, that you would challenge us, that you would awaken us, that you would renew us, that you would encourage us, God, so that we could be your faithful people in this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So when I was in seminary, I spent about a year as a substitute teacher in the Long Beach Unified School District. And I can remember when I first started, the first couple experiences that I had, it was terrible because, you know, the students were just going crazy and I couldn't uh, do classroom management very well. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a teacher and he said, look, he said, "Um, those kids are playing you. They know you're green. You're too easy. He said, you need to go in there. And he said, you need to be strict, lay down the law. And he says, you need to learn how to speak a clear and an unequivocal no. And so I tried that. And so uh, the next few times I substituted, uh, the students would ask, uh, can I go to the bathroom? No. Can I go get something out of my locker? No. Can I move uh, next to my friend? No. Uh, can I, can I uh, eat my sandwich? No. And I learned how to speak the strong and unequivocal no over every request they asked. And you know, I was thinking about that, and I, I think... Uh, you know, as I was growing up as a Christian, that was very much how I viewed the Christian life and how I viewed God, that God pretty much was about speaking a clear and unequivocal no over my life. And God was primarily known for what he was against. And so I would think about, you know, the fun things uh, my friends did or what I would like to do. And I would think God was just against those things. Uh, But what I've come to discover as I've grown in the Christian life is that the Christian life is not primarily an ethic of no, it is an ethic of yes to a life of love and fullness and beauty. And in the text that we're looking at this, this morning, God actually gives to us a word that gives us a vision of this life of yes, of, of beauty and of love for God and of love for neighbor. And he, he reveals to us in this text that God wants to shape and form our lives so that we can be this community that is marked by this life of yes, of love to God and neighbor. And this is so important, I think, for us to grab a hold of in this cultural moment we live in. You know, I was thinking this last week and even up to today, I was wondering whether or not I should pause and kind of do a post-election sermon. And uh, like many of you this last week, I was totally distracted uh, looking at the headlines every five or 10 minutes to see if there was finally uh, a winner announced and wondering why on earth Nevada couldn't get their act together and count the votes. And, uh, you know, why are they taking so long? There's only 3 million people there and having all that. But I was thinking, I I wonder if I should do like a post-election sermon. And then it occurred to me, kind of looking at the text that we're looking at today, that probably there is nothing more important for you and I as God's people to do than to live into the vocation that God has given us to be a holy, set-apart people that is marked by goodness and compassion, who actually embody this yes of love in the world. And that's what he calls us to in this text that we're looking at today. And what he's going to give us is really this, this vision of living a life that is transformed and that is beautiful, and he's going to show us how to live into this new kind of transformed life. And so we're going to look at what he says underneath four headings. Number one, we're going to see where the life of transformation begins 
Second, we'll see where it ends or what's the telos, what's our destination. Uh, thirdly, what it looks like. And then finally, how we can grow into this new life that God uh, wants for us. And so let's walk through the text by looking at each of these four headings. Notice first where it begins. Notice what he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. He puts it like this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now stop there. Here he's going to tell us to put on. So here he's exhorting us how we ought to live. But notice where the exhortation, where this transformed life begins. It begins with a new identity that God has conferred upon us. Because notice what he says. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, your holy and beloved. And isn't it true that it is very difficult to live a life marked by joy and goodness and generosity and love and kindness towards others when we are speaking negativity over our own selves? You know, when we find ourselves with these voices in our head telling us we are ugly or we're fat or uh, we're stupid or we're no good or, or we're losers or we're pathetic or whatever, when you have those voices going on inside your head, it's really difficult to live a life that is focused on others and living positively and well and loving others when we're so negative and so hard on ourselves. But here, all of those negative voices that are in our head, a stronger voice breaks through, and it's the voice of God. And he says, you are loved, and you are chosen, and you are mine. You belong to me. And listen to these words he uses to describe our identity. What he, what he says about who we are, he says, we are God's chosen ones. We have been selected by God. And you know, there's nothing more thrilling, nothing more affirming than when somebody who you respect actually chooses you and they want you. I can remember back when I was a kid, some of you had this experience in elementary school. You know, it was like the worst experience. They would line you up on that back wall at the, out on the playground and they would start choosing members to be on different teams. You know, play kickball or basketball or whatever. And I was one of these kids who I just wasn't good at team sports. Uh, my thing ultimately became surfing, but there was no ocean on the uh, uh, playground. And so we were left with kickball and I was just terrible. And so inevitably, I was always the last kid chosen. And it, sometimes there's another guy who, who was no good at things either. And they would fight over which one had to have me and which one had to have this other guy. But it was just so deflating. But you know, there's something that is so invigorating and so affirming when somebody who you respect actually wants you, they choose you. And here's what it says in the text. It says, God, the creator of heaven and earth has chosen you. He has selected you. He loves you. He wants you. You know, the language that he uses here of chosen, holy, and beloved, these are the same words that were used to describe Jesus himself. You remember when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, uh, the dove descended and the father spoke and he said, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved. And, and, and a little bit later, God refers to Jesus as his chosen one, his elect one. He is his set-apart one. And here, all of this language that is describing Jesus is now applied to those of us who have been united with Jesus through faith and in our baptism and in our new life. God says, you are now mine. I've chosen you. I love you. And when you realize who you are, 
all of a sudden you can start to begin to live into a different kind of transformed life. You know, when you are growing out of the security of God's love for you, that you belong, that you are worth something to God, this frees you from all those negative voices and it allows you to move out in a life of love for others and live into this life of transformation. And so here is where transformation begins when you know who you are. You know, there's that great scene in the movie Moana where Moana, uh, she crosses the seas uh, to go to, I think it's Teke, and uh, it's this volcanic uh, uh, mountain that is spewing forth all of this lava and ugliness and anger. And she goes and she confronts it, and she says this to the volcano. You have to see the movie. It's really good. But she says this. She says, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And it's as if uh, in Christ, God says to us, I have crossed the horizon to find you. They've stolen the heart from inside of you. You have all this negativity inside and you don't need to speak that negativity over yourself. God says, you belong to me. Do you know who you are? You're loved. And so Paul says, look, here is where this life of transformation begins. When you know who you are, you belong to God. You're loved by God. But notice where it ends. In other words, where this life of transformation is ultimately taking us. Notice what he says back in chapter 3, verse 10. He puts it like this. He says, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And he uses this interesting phrase. He talks about the, it being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. He says, here is your destiny. Here is where you are going. God is in a process of transforming you and renewing you after his own image and likeness. And this phrase, it's intended first to take us back. It's intended to take us back to our original vocation and our original identity that was given to us in the garden. When God creates humanity, he creates us in his image and in his likeness. Now, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, one way to understand it is to think about a mirror. And a mirror uh, reveals your own image. You can see your image in the mirror. And our original vocation was to image God into this world. In other words, uh, I don't know if you've ever taken a mirror and uh, you take a, the light of the sun, it shines down on the mirror, and you can kind of like direct uh, the light from the sun to shine on something else, and you can kind of like you know, maybe put it in someone's eyes or something like that. But our original vocation was to take the light of God's love and his goodness and his kindness and to live before the face of God under his love and then to radiate that love out into the world. Uh, we could put it like this using this, uh, one of my um, fabulous works of art, <laughs> but you can think of it like this. God uh, pours out his love and his wisdom and his goodness over our lives. And our original vocation was to reflect that out into the world, out into the world and how we cultivated the earth and how we developed the world, how we cared for plants and land and animals. We were to reflect into creation God's own wise and loving care over his world. 
and how we loved our neighbor, how we reached out and cared for uh, our spouse and our friends and our siblings and our children and our parents and, and our neighbor. We were to reflect God's kindness and goodness and love into how we uh, cared for one another. This was our original vocation was to bear the image of God in the world. But then what happened? Well, we turned our back from God and we turned away from the true and living God and we turned to idols like money and sex and power. And these things that we put first place in our life, it distorted God's image. And so rather than going out into the world and reflecting his love and his generosity and his goodness and his kindness in creation and how we cared for creation and in our relationships and how we loved our neighbor, instead of all of that, we, we, we reflected a marred visage and we brought into the world violence and greed and self-centeredness. And we began to destroy and to bring toxic chemicals into the ocean and into the air. And we put uh, the chickens into these little battery cages. And we put our pigs, who are so intelligent, we put them in these little crates. And we didn't care well for God's creation. And then we, we moved out toward our neighbor with jealousy and with envy. And we wanted power over our neighbor. And nations began to bomb other nations. And we developed new technologies uh, to kill more people. And we've done violence in this world so much. Violence. And, and, and we've, we've, we've moved out into the world in ways that don't reflect God's love for this world. We are not imaging God into this world. But God would not let us go. And so in Christ, God actually came after us into this world so that he might break the power of these idols over our life and all of their destructive force and all of the dehumanizing and destructive stuff that then was coming out of our lives because of our idolatry, because we had turned our back on God. All of these destructive things, God broke its power. And God's ultimate desire is to bring us out of that and begin to renew his image back in us again so that once again, we will live in this world as people who live underneath the love of God as those who are elect and holy and chosen of God and then begin to reflect that love out in the world and how we do our business and how we interact with our next door neighbors and, and how we interact with our roommates and the, the, our, our classmates at school and our parents and our siblings and our spouse and in and, and all of creation, how we care for this world, we are to reflect God's wise and loving stewardship over creation. So God's call upon our life, his work in our life ultimately is to restore his image so that we can be faithful image bearers in this world again. And so this is what Christ has come to do is to restore God's image in us again. You know, have you seen that bumper sticker that says Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? Um, and usually you see that on the back of a car that maybe just cuts you off and they have like one of those fish stickers on the back and you think, come on, Christians aren't supposed to drive like that. And then you see the bumper sticker, look, we're not perfect. We're just forgiven, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but listen, Christians are way more than just forgiven. God's desire is not simply to wipe our slate clean. It's not simply to remove our guilt and our shame. God is at work in our life to change our character. 
and actually to form and shape and mold us into being a different kind of humanity. That in our life and in our actions and how we, we engage in this world, we reflect God's own wise and loving stewardship in this world. We are having God's, God is at work in our life to restore the image that was marred. But what does it look like? What does it look like in practice? So we've seen where our transformation begins. We've seen where it ends, what the goal is. Our destiny is for God's image to be restored in us. But what does it look like when a person is, is experiencing this renewal and we begin to image God in this world again? What does it look like in practice? And if we could answer that in one word, the answer would be Jesus. You know, it's Paul who earlier said that he is the image of the invisible God. You know, Jesus, of course, is full divinity. He is fully God, but he is also true humanity. In Jesus, we see what the true image bearer is meant to be like. We see what our true humanity is supposed to look like. And Jesus came to restore that true humanity in us again. And, and you see this in Jesus. Jesus, of course, lives all of his life before the face of his father, living underneath the smile and the love of his father. And then he radiates that love into the lives of all people who he interacts with. And so, you know, there's this leper who was one of the untouchables in society. And he has lived in social isolation. Wherever he goes, he has to say, unclean, unclean. His body is covered with these gross sores. He has not been touched in years. And this leper comes up to Jesus and he falls down. And he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the Bible tells us that there, Jesus' heart was filled with compassion and he said, I am well. And he reached out and he touched the untouchable and he said, be clean. And what does it mean to be an image bearer? It means to be compassionate like Jesus. It means, as in the words of our text, to put on compassion, to have your heart break for untouchables and those who are cast out and who are socially isolated and to reach out and to touch them. You know, on the night before Jesus was crucified. He was betrayed by all of his closest friends. In fact, uh, one of his three closest friends, one of his three best friends, Peter, stabbed him in the back and around a fire denied that he ever knew Jesus. And after his resurrection, one of the very first things that Jesus does is he goes to Peter, who had stabbed him in his back, and he extends not judgment and not anger towards him, but he actually extends forgiveness and long-suffering and patience towards Peter, and he restores him. What does it mean to be an image bearer? It means to put on forgiveness and long-suffering and patience like Jesus. He is the true image of God. There's another story in the Gospels where uh, this woman is torn out of her bed at night and she is thrown before Jesus by a group of religious hypocrites. And they say to Jesus, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery and the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? 
And Jesus turns away from their sin-sniffing, self-righteous, ever-watching-to-condemn-another-person behavior, and he starts to write in the ground, and one by one, each one of the religious hypocrites walk away. And Jesus then looks up, and he sees this woman who is full of guilt and shame. She's humbled. She's embarrassed. She's undone. And Jesus looks at her, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none, Lord. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You see, to be an image bearer, it means to put on forgiveness and kindness like Jesus, to extend toward people who are shamed and who are embarrassed, to extend God's kindness to them. And of course, above all else, it means to put on love like Jesus. You know, a little bit earlier in one of Paul's letters, he said this, he said, you know, for a righteous man, some would, would scarcely die. And for a good man, some might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says, put on love like Jesus. Be an image bearer of God in this world. This is what God is forming and shaping us to be, is to be a community of people who learn in our life to live like Jesus. But that raises our final question. We've seen what it looks like. It looks like putting on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another to forgive each other as God has forgiven you, it means to put on love. This is what it looks like. But let's, uh, let's raise the final question. How does it happen? How is it that we can participate in God's work of transformation in our life? You know, it's interesting. Um, th- there's this... Uh, Two things that Paul says. On the one hand, in chapter 3, verse 10, he says that you and I are being renewed. In other words, something is being done to you and in you. Something is being done not simply by you, but something is being done to you and in you by God. God is graciously, by his spirit, at work in our life to transform and shape us. But he says, look, God is not the only actor in this drama of transformation into the image of God. You also have a role, and the role is summed up in a little phrase in chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 14. It's in this phrase, our call is to put on, put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And then verse 14, our job is to put on love. But the question is, is arises, what does that mean? How are we supposed to put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and love? You know, this word put on, it's actually drawn from the world of clothing and fashion. Uh, that Greek word uh, put on, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's an analogy that was oftentimes used in the, in the Greco-Roman world uh, to describe character formation and virtue formation. You would put on virtues like you would put on clothes. And I I think the analogy is used because he wants us to consider 
what kind of virtues are you presenting when you go out in the world? You know, you think a lot about what you wear, right, before you go outside. I, no, no, not all of you. Uh, some of you don't think enough about what you wear before you go outside. I won't name any names, um, but I have some of you in mind. But some of you don't, don't think enough, but, but some of you think so much about that. Do you think, though, as much about the virtue that you put on when you go out and live before people? You know, sometimes when I'm about ready to walk out the door, you know, and some of you have had this experience before, maybe uh, one of my daughters or uh, my, my wife might say, you're not going to wear that, are you? And what do I say? I say, well, no, no, I, I, wasn't, I was just, I wasn't going to wear this. No, of course. Why? What's, what's wrong with this? You know, and then, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, and I, I think Paul might, might, might ask you and I, when he looks at how we speak to others, how we think about others, how we treat others, uh, the cavalier way in which we disregard others, he might say, look, you're not going to wear that out in the world, are you? Put on something else. And so I think the analogy is used to make us think about how we actually are presenting ourselves before others. But I think that that's where the analogy begins to break down. Because, listen, it is easy to put on an article of clothing, right? It's easy to put on your shirt or to put on a jacket. It usually just takes a few seconds. It's no problem but that's not at all what it's like to put on, let's say, compassion or patience or long-suffering. Uh, that is not a, a work that just takes a few seconds. Uh, that is the work of a lifetime. And I, I think um, a better analogy to, to maybe wrap our minds around what Paul is actually getting at here is not so much uh, putting on new clothing as it would be to put on more muscle. Now, the other day, I was uh, looking at myself in the mirror, and I thought, Josh, you need to put on some more muscle. Now, if I'm going to put on some more muscle, what is going to need to occur? Well, um, a, a few things, right? Uh, I might need to make a choice to start getting up early every day and going down to the pool, maybe going down to the Rose Bowl and swimming a mile and a half and then getting up out of the pool and doing some push-ups, and then going over to the weight room and lifting some weights. I might need to make a choice, uh, to make, make, might need to make different choices with my diet so that I cut out, you know, the sugary and the high-carb foods and eat more, you know, good fats and clean protein and vegetables, right, and get that, that good, you know, and I, 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 I'll need to make some different choices, but it's not enough just to make those choices once, right? You've got to make them again and again and again if you're going to make headway. And then those choices actually need to become practices and habits. I need to habitually eat differently. I need to habitually uh, get up at the same time and go work out every morning if I want to start bulking up and gaining some muscle and, and getting some uh, definition. And then I also might, in addition to making different choices and getting into different habits and patterns, I might also need to have a, a vision in my mind uh, of the kind of, you know, body I want, you know? And, um, you know, for me, I, I've got no ambitions to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger was in his prime, you know? Uh, you know, that's, that's not really my aim, you know? But to be, just to get a little bit more bulk, a little more definition, maybe a six-pack, I mean, that would be sufficient, right? And um, 
So you might need to have a vision, and, 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 then, and then you might need to have some friends that join with you. You know, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to eat different, it's better if I've got a whole, you know, my whole family's on board, maybe some friends are on board. Uh, if you're going to keep working out and stay in that discipline, it's easier if you've got a buddy. Uh, better still if you have a trainer that meets with you and holds you accountable and tells you what to do. And this is what it takes to put on more muscle. And listen, this is what it means to put on these virtues. It means to engage. It means to make some different choices. It means to engage in different habits and practices. It means to get some friends around you who are moving in the same direction. Get maybe some mentors. Get a picture in your mind and put it before you of the kind of human being you want to become. Maybe by reading the Gospels over and over again and studying the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus. This is what it takes to put on virtue. It is again and again going back and doing the same sorts of things. And of course, it's not just, uh, it, it, it requires more than us simply wanting to grow in these character traits. As we saw last week, it requires intention. Not just do you want to grow in compassion and kindness and meekness and love, but do you intend to become a different kind of human being? And if you do intend to do that, are you starting to make different choices with how you spend your time and the places you go? Are you building different habits and practices in your life? Practices maybe of pausing before the day begins and sitting in the presence of God and studying scripture and, 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 and seeking God's face? Are you surrounding yourself with, with people that live the way you want to live? Are you making choices to say, look, I will not speak those words about people behind their back. I, I will give up gossip and, and I will deal with the bitterness inside of me. Maybe I'll go to therapy and go through some process of like working through some anger, but you, you commit yourself to choices and to practices and to habits. And over time, these things all have this effect of forming and shaping and molding us. But here is what I'm concerned about. Here's what I'm concerned about for myself, and here's what I'm concerned about for you all, is that we oftentimes are making choices and we're engaging ourselves in habits and practices and patterns that are not forming us into the kind of person that looks more like Jesus but we're actually choice, cho making choices and engaged in patterns and practices that are malforming us. You see, here is the truth, and it's sobering, but, but, but here it is, is that all of us are on a journey of becoming something or someone. You see, it's not just a follower of Jesus that says, look, God is forming me and I want to participate in this. I want to put on this character. I want to be in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. All of us are in a process of becoming. The question is, is what are you in a process of becoming? And what you become is a result of the choices and the habits and the practices that you engage in throughout the course of your life. And these type of things shape and they mold and they form us into being particular kinds of people. And I think my concern about, 
us as followers of Jesus in this culture that we inhabit is we immerse ourselves in in malforming practices all week long, and then we go to church for an hour on Sunday, and we wonder why it is that we as God's people don't carry more of the compassion and more of the meekness and more of the kindness and more of the humility and more of the ability to suffer long with difficult people and forgive and love people. And it's because we have immersed ourselves in malforming practices all week long. And let me just suggest uh, two very common malforming practices that you may be engaging in that I would encourage you to disengage in. One of them is to incessantly listen to talking heads that are negative on the news and maybe on podcasts, maybe on AM talk radio. And these kind of voices, as you immerse yourself into them again and again and again, how they form and how they shape you is they start to divide the world for you into good people and bad people. And usually the good people are the people who share your same political preferences, your same view of culture, and then the bad people is everyone else out there. And the, over the long term of listening to these same negative voices, what you find yourself doing is you start to look down with disdain and disgust on people who are not like you. You become unfamiliar with why people would even think that way. Because all you're doing is you're incessantly listening to these same voices, and these voices are, are malforming us. They're not shaping us into being people of compassion and kindness and meekness and humility. They are, are, are forming us into being the kind of people who lack empathy and who are actually arrogant and self-righteous. And so there may be some voices on the news or on podcasts or on talk radio that you need to disengage from. Or maybe, you know, bop in every now and again, maybe once a week for 30 minutes or something. But don't incessantly listen to negative voices that make you angry about people who are not like you, who don't think like you or look like you. But I think the second major force that is malforming us are the things, not necessarily that we listen to and watch, but the stuff that we click. You know, this last week I was listening to a, um, an interview with a guy named Tristan Harris who was a high-level executive at uh, Google, and he's one of the thought leaders in sort of the ethics of technology. And he, he was talking in this interview about a presentation that he gave to his colleagues at Google where he, he was raising the alarm about the effect that their products were having on the American population. And he started talking about social media and, uh, you know, YouTube. And, and he said this. He said, look, um, he argued to this group. He said that th these technology leaders are basically controlling the world's psychology, which is very sobering. He said, every time you look at your phone, uh, he says, you're experiencing thoughts and you're scrolling through feeds and you're believing things about the world and he says, this has become the primary meaning-making machine for our world. And he says, it's an incredibly manipulative environment that is tapping again and again into our weaknesses. And so uh, he gave this example. He said, um, uh, he said, if you're a teen girl and you open a dieting video on YouTube, he says, what happens is, is there's a, a list of suggested videos next to you on YouTube. 
And those suggested videos are there because they've done research on your browsing history and they've studied hundreds of thousands of other people just like you who are teenage girls or whatever who are watching the same video. And they are, they've carefully curated uh, something next to you on the suggested thing that you will click next. And the, the, the most clicked thing after a dieting video are anorexia videos. And all of a sudden, this takes teen girls down into a path that ultimately leads to self-destructive behavior. Now, of course, this is not unique to teenage girls. This is happening to people all the time. It happens to Facebook users and Instagram users and uh, YouTube users. And we are being manipulated and we are being coerced to continually go down rabbit holes, researching and reading things on the internet that are tweaking how we think about the world and that are making us people that are less and less marked by compassion and meekness and gentleness and self-control. And they are constantly tweaking how we think about others. And so it may be that we need to disengage and take serious steps to disengage from things that we're clicking that are malforming how we view others and how we interact with others and how we think about the world. And instead, engage in these practices that are actually putting on practices, gathering together with others who care about the things that are good and true and beautiful. And engaging your time and your money in, in practices of generosity and engaging your mind in habits and discipline of reflection and meditation and ordering your life in such a way that you're actually living for things that matter. And over time, these practices continually engage and will shape and form us into being more and more a people of character. Now, I want to end by simply saying this with the same thing I said, said last week. Keep in mind that not everything depends upon you. Ultimately, this work of transformation does not depend solely on a human effort. Ultimately, it is a work of our triune God, our Father who has chosen us and who has spoken his love over us, the Son of God who came and who gave himself fully unreservedly for us, and the Spirit of God who empowers us and walks beside us so that as we reconnect our lives with the God who created us to image him in this world and as we experience and open ourselves up to his love on a regular habitual basis, we begin more and more to reflect this love into the world. And so may God continue to mold and shape us, Christ Church, as a people that lives underneath the smile and the love of God and reflects that love into the world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. And I pray, oh God, for myself, I pray for this church family. God, we, we pray together that you would help us to be a people that disengages from all of those malforming influences in our life and that engages in those practices and those habits that actually form and shape us into being truly human. Those kind of people who are marked by empathy and compassion and love. God, help us to be those people. Enable us by your spirit to be your faithful people in this world so that you might be honored and so that your good name might be known. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.